Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today with a guest that both Scott and I have been looking forward to for a long time joining us. David Bennett has written a wonderful new book called A War of Loves. He also speaks, he writes regularly, and we want to talk about this book, A War of Loves, today. You're also connected with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. But first off, David, thanks for taking the time to join us all the way from Greece. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, it's Yes, I'm calling from Athens, Greece. Uh, I've just come back from a lovely Greek meal, so ready for your your questions. Well, we, we appreciate you interrupting your holiday for us. <laughs> oh, no, it's a welcome interruption, definitely. <laughs> well, I loved your book. I'm honored that you gave me the chance to endorse it. But let me ask you about the title. I thought it was so intriguing. Why call your book A War of Loves? You know, I think when I was writing the book, I wanted a title that could reflect what it's like to be a Christian in the world, I think in a general sense, but also primarily what it's like to be a same-sex attracted or gay Christian, uh, especially one like myself who's come from a non-believing atheistic background and then becoming a Christian, that there's this kind of inner conflict between two definitions of what love is, Mm -hmm. the secular definition and the Christian definition that we see in the person of Jesus, but also even more fundamentally on an individual level between, you know, the desires we have that do not align with the divine will and the desires that, you know, um, the desire for God to follow Jesus, to, to, to live in the kingdom. And I wanted, yeah, a title that could, could just show that tensile reality that I think helps us come out of of the question of desire and same-sex desire with deeper resources than maybe currently we have in that conversation. David, I think our, our with most of our listeners being in the U.S., uh, they, they will detect a, an accent that's a little different than what we normally have on our podcast. So <laughs> t- tell our listeners a bit about where you grew up and what kind of family yeah. you came from. Definitely. Well, um, I grew up in an atheist agnostic home in Sydney, Australia, so lots of sunshine. But I wasn't the typical, stereotypical Sydney citizen who liked to go to the beach and surf. I was a kind of, you know, intellectually engaged young teenager with all the big questions. And I grew, I grew up in a kind of a public school context and then eventually went to a Christian Anglican school where I was confronted with the question of God for the first time. And I think for me, God spelt condemnation for gay people. God mm. spelt uh, misogyny or um, anti-feminism. It spelt a kind of law that was going to be hung over my head the, as a gay person that I could never fulfill, just simply because I had these desires. They weren't they weren't something I chose. And so the logic of Christianity never made any sense to me at school. It was always something that I bucked against because it didn't make sense to me. How could a God give me these desires that are so fundamental to my humanity? 
and then condemn me for them. And I didn't have the nuance theologically or in other ways, or even people around me who could explain it to me. It was just that homosexuality was bad, gay people were the enemy, and we need to just get rid of them and keep in our Christian kind of suburban utopia. Um, and that I was a threat, a threat to that reality. And that was deeply hurtful, and that made me very angry. And at the age of 14, uh, I came out as gay. And then, you know, Henry Nouwen talks about how the biggest battle we have to really receive God, that it's actually self-rejection, because we say, well, I'm not good enough to be loved by God. And I think that's how a lot of non-believers feel. <laughs> they feel like they're just not good enough, um, and no one's ever told them about grace. Um, although there were people who did show that grace to me, I still couldn't accept it. I still just was too angry and too, that self-rejection was driving me too much. So I, I favored that for radical self-disclosure. Hi, I'm David. I'm gay. If you have a problem with it, I have a problem with you. And that came out of a real experience of homophobia. Um, many experiences actually, but one particular one marked me when I was in a park in Sydney and a man pulled up on a motorbike, um, when uh, my boyfriend at the time gave me a cross, believe it or not, <laughs> as a present, and gave me a kiss, and this man saw us kissing, and as I, as I received this gift, um, and threw a large stone against my back, and you see mm -hmm. in the cover of the book, A War of Loves, there's this kind of, there's this cross dangling down, and actually in my hand was this cross, which I thought was the symbol of my oppression, but it was actually the symbol of my acceptance into the kingdom of God um, as a gay person, but I hadn't yet discovered that. So that kind of it reflects my wrestle as a young person in Sydney, Australia, in a Christian school, but from an atheist background. But I did go through many spiritual fads, and I did have a spiritual hunger, and I played around with Wicca, with New Age religions, with Buddhism at one point. And I actually ended up going to a psychic when I was 15. And this psychic read my tarot cards and she was reading my tarot cards. She said, David, you're a child of the light and you're destined to be with Jesus, the greatest <laughs> mediator in the heavenly realm. So there you go. Wow. I was practically haunted by God, the hound of heaven. <laughs> From quite a young age, God was pursuing me, but I just still couldn't see it. I still felt myself condemned by the church and by Christianity. That's how I felt reading your book, that it's like Jesus just wouldn't let you go and you resisted it at every turn for years. Even when becoming yeah. a Christian, there were continued battles, which we all have. But describe that mm. moment where you just felt God's presence and you really surrendered to the Lord and overcame some of these barriers that you've been talking about. Well, you know, Sean, exactly. I think we do, and I think... You know, the Bible talks about there's the law of sin and death and the law of grace. And I was under the law of sin and death, so I couldn't, I couldn't perceive God's grace for me. Um, and so it wasn't until the age of 19 that I was in a pub in central Sydney. And my uncle, who I'd had a debate with, actually quite an apologetic um, kind of based debate about the existence of God. After that, at the Christmas lunch table in 2008, he was in the car and he had a uh, word from God that I would be saved in three months' time. And he was right. In three months' time, 
um, I encountered God and I, I had only three months of atheism left. And wow. so <laughs> I was in this pub in central Sydney and this young creative uh, who had her film in one of the largest short, com- short film competitions in the world. She was there in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney and she offered me prayer. She asked me the question, have you experienced the love of God? And being a postmodern, I instantly was interested in that question <laughs> of oh. experience. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she offered me prayer and I said, well, I'm a good agnostic. I have to be open to the existence of God, but I don't think anything's going to happen. And in this moment, she just kind of launched into the Christian prayer of the century, you know, and used all Christian words that kind of freaked me out, if I'm honest. <laughs> she prayed for me. But as she was praying for me, I just felt this, tingling sensation on the top of my head and it was like oil being poured over me and uh, I had this encounter with Jesus and finally the question will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior came to me like a voice in my mind and I said yes and then the love of God was poured out on me this was exactly three months after the debate with my uncle and I came home my mom had become a Christian three months before this and she was there waiting, and I had to eat my words because I said to her, you have to choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. And uh, I told her that that night I'd become a Christian, and I said, yes, I will accept your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And there was a journey from that point of deep questioning out of that experience, powerful experience of God's love. Um, about my sexuality, and that's part of really the S. That that's where really the war of love starts <laughs> is when I've become a Christian. But what do I do with my gay identity? What do I do with this, and how, and the rest of my humanity as well? How does this all figure in in the story? In how I approach God, how I worship Him, and so yeah, the book is that journey towards finding God's truth and submitting my life to Jesus in the power of the spirit, but it was a journey. It took me three years. You know, I wanted gay marriage to be, you know, the way I wanted it to be true and right. And I, you know, was an activist in a way in the church for the first three years of being a Christian. Um, and that all changed at a certain point, uh, when I was living in Strasbourg, France and got in a moment of prayer said, I need you to give me your homosexuality. And so I gave God my homosexuality. And that was through the example, actually, of a celibate missionary woman who lived in Strasbourg, France, named Mary. And she exemplified a life of discipleship that was so deep and profound and costly. And I'd never seen that before. Mm. And I said, well, if she can live this way, so can I. I could give my sexuality to God. Um, And that really is another aspect of this there's an aspect of self-denial that every disciple needs to go through. And I think I have a heart to re- regain that for the gay community, especially, um, but also the whole Christian church, um, that we are all called to be disciples, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves. And in that, we actually receive our true identity um, in Christ. So there you go. It was a long, a long story, many very profound moments of God's presence and you know, really the personal evidence of his presence with me. And I think one of the things that 
I think about homosexuality and the question of sexualities, it's not really just a question of is it right or wrong. It's a question of theodicy. It's a question of can God really be good if he's allowed me to have these desires? Uh, and I think the best response that I've experienced to the problem of this suffering of being same-sex attracted or gay is God's personal presence, that that's what meant the most to me. And it gave me the capacity to trust him with my sexuality. Yeah. It sounds, it also sounds like you had that, that sense of God's presence incarnated in a whole host of pretty significant people in your lives who came at strategic points that, you know, I, I looked at Sean as you were telling that story and I said, I said, this is stuff that you can only explain by, you know, some sort of uh, intervention of God. Um, yeah. So yeah just, absolutely. Just, Honestly. <laughs> I just want to, I want our listeners to appreciate how, just how remarkable a story this is and how, how, mm. how God just kept pursuing you. Um, mm. And then, and then what, what I want to ask about is when you, when you finally came to faith, you describe in the book yeah. that you found yourself caught between two different cultures. Uh, yes, you know the the sec the you know the secular university culture that you were going to school in had rejected you, but a, a Christian mm. culture that that you were embracing that didn't quite seem to understand the kinds of things that you were dealing with. Uh, tell yeah. tell us a little bit about that tension and what what the church can actually do better to help wow. people who are, you know, who are coming to faith out of a, a similar kind of background that you have. Yeah, that's, uh, there's just so many layers. It's a fantastic question, Scott. Thank you. I, I think, I think that, um, these, these old hat conservative and liberal discourses of the culture war are the most harmful thing for LGBTQI or same-sex attracted, whatever term you want to use, people. Because what it does to us is it puts us in a situation where we have to choose and we have to hurt each other in the process because we're being wedged constantly, you know, between, you know, adopt this ethic or adopt that ethic. And I just, I, I think we need to really carefully um we want to keep the truth intact of what the gospel says about human sexuality. And I don't want to compromise that. I think sometimes people have a fear that that's what I'm trying to say and not, not in any sense. I'm, you know, really want that truth to be the center, but the way we get to the conversation has to change um, with people and, you know, with people of different perspectives. And I've tried to model in my life, a way of having a conviction. Yeah, no, I don't think expressing my sexuality as a gay man is compatible with, uh, with my faith. I think that it isn't, but the desire, the attraction itself, there's nothing I've done that is my fault to have that. And that the difference of embodiment that I have actually is a site for the glorification of Jesus and the worship of God, because Jesus didn't choose me in spite of my weakness, he chose me precisely because I have these weaknesses and he can be glorified through them. And we see this in the risen Jesus, that he still had those scars. And it's through his 
scars that the glory of God is revealed to us. It's not in spite of them. He's not some Superman flying in the sky. He's a very human Jesus who is very God at the same time. And I want to regain, I think we need to look back at Jesus again. (laughs) We need to look back at what's the significance of our embodiment and how can it be, how can we offer our bodies up as living sacrifices and destroy the idols that hold us back from that? Because that's where true freedom is found. And I think that will break down the cultural war that we see and hopefully bring truth and grace together, love and truth together, and create safe spaces for you know, LGBTQI and same-sex attracted people to actually encounter God and to receive his word directly on this. I mean, I think with something this personal and significant to one's humanity, like one's sexuality, you really need to hear from God. Like, I needed that. I, it wasn't enough for someone just to teach me a dogma. I needed it, the dogma to come, to become incarnate, to put on flesh, to be a community around me that loved me no matter what and said, you're going to go through ups and downs. This is really hard, but you know, we're going to be there with you. And my aunt Helen in the the story, she said some incredible things to me that really helped me as a gay person, you know, walk in the church. And she said, David, I, I've read scripture and I agree with what it says about human sexuality, but that's so easy for me. I don't struggle with same sex desires. I don't have that reality to deal with. So it's easy for me to believe this aspect of things. But for you, this is a very difficult area. And I want you to know that, you know, our church has a policy about leadership and we think that marriage is this way. But whatever happens, you're an indispensable part of the body of Christ. And without you, we would be missing an invaluable part of who we are. Mm. And hearing that as a gay person was so healing that I was important to the church, that I mattered, that I was indispensable. I think that that is that expressing that to the gay community, the church saying, we need you. We can't do this kingdom thing without you. You're important. You're part of our body. You're the body of Christ. You know, for me, that unlocked something that made me feel safe, like I'm not going to be rejected again. And it meant I could listen to the teaching of scripture and from these people and not feel like I was going to be condemned again. So here, these are some just little points, I suppose, I want to bring out in how we can improve the conversation and break down, you know, points along the way that have, um, have really polarized our culture on this question. And I think the other thing is the fear of being weaponized. I mean, Mm. when I wrote the book, I was really afraid, like, am I going to be weaponized (laughs) in this conversation um, on sexuality? Am I just going to become a poster person to, to make someone feel justified in their ethical beliefs instead of a real part of the body of Christ that matters? So, yeah, I think that is a really big key, Um, not compromising the truth, but applying that truth in love and giving, creating safe spaces where people can discuss this without the fear of rejection. That that insight was worth the price of the whole podcast. Mm. That's so, that is so. (laughs) Thanks. It took me a while to get there, but I think, yeah, that's really important. That is so profound. Isn't this podcast free, Scott?
Yes. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this Figure question. Speech. <laughs> let me ask you this question, David, because I think it's related to what you were saying. There's some debates, and I don't want to get caught up in the particulars, but whether or not Christians should use the label gay, and you use it in a very thoughtful, nuanced manner. Can you just tell us about your decision and thinking on that and why it's important to you? I think, Scott, theologically, it's very important to me. This is why. So I think that in certain hyper-reformed, uh, hyper kind of um, Greek theology that we've inherited, <laughs> there's a latent anthropological dualism that wants to say now you cannot, your identity has nothing to do with the body you currently inhabit. You are just a spirit. You know, you're not body, soul, and spirit. You're just a spirit. And soon you'll put on, you'll get a resurrected body, but this body doesn't matter. It's deleted. It's going to be destroyed and thrown on the waste, thrown on the waste heap. Now I obviously spend time with NT, right? So I've been a little bit colored in what I think about anthropology, but just this basic point that NT makes that it's this creation that will be raised from the dead. It's like this body that I'm in will be raised. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to be gay in the eschaton or same-sex attracted in the eschaton or in the future, you know, when there's a resurrection. But it, again, it's through the weakness of this mortal frame that I will then put on immortality. So somehow in the doctrine of glorification, what the weaknesses of our body now matter in eternity. They're going to have some significance and weight that we lived them out faithfully, that we submitted them to Jesus. And so for me, the word gay is only a placeholder to say, here is my weakness. Here is the thing, one of the very profound personal um, weaknesses I have. And yet it's also linked to the very good creation in the beginning where we were all created for companionship and intimacy. Um, and that, you know, somehow you can't just un, like un, disentangle that, you know, that it's not like being an alcoholic or being an adulterer or something like that. This is something even more profound because it links in with the original creation, male and female, this whole idea of the Imago Dei, and so I think there will be a special glory that is um, given to those who live a life faithfully in a body that is same-sex attracted, but don't seek to live that out. I think God will reward that with, and that that will glorify his name and be a very profound form of worship that the church should. Um, but I don't want to call myself a gay Christian without the added celibate because in our culture it's confusing to people it, you know I th and i see this in the generations my mom and dad see gay as being something very linked to being sexually active whereas my generation we see it simply as related to one's sexual orientation not to to that so i think for me i only want to refer to it as relating to my sexual orientation and it it's a way of me boasting in my weakness um and I think it's important as well to say that that subjectivity matters, that this embodiment is different and matters um, in the way that we understand personhood and salvation and redemption as Christians. So there's a lot more to say that's in the book, but that's how I would probably start to say, you know, I'm not referring to an ultimate identity. 
I'm referring to an aspect of my identity that will one day be transformed um, and that I await that redemption faithfully in celibate. So I would only say celibacy. I would only say celibate gay Christian. Yeah, that, um, that, do you have any further no, questions on that, Sean? Or? Uh, no, I think that was wonderful, the way you answered it. Yeah, David, I think that's a very helpful distinction. And I think for, for our listeners, you just got a taste of the kind of theological depth and insight that is all over the book. Uh, so we want to wreck it. If you want a little bit more of the way our guest here, David, has, has theologically reasoned, uh, we would highly recommend the book to you. David, let me switch gears a little bit. Um, I'm not sure you say it straight out in the book, but you you have places where you make suggestions that the church has, has today made an idol out of marriage. Um, mm. I'm wondering just if, if you'd be, be a little clearer about that, if you actually believe that's true, and if so, yeah. how, how do you think that affects single adults, wh- whether they're same-sex attracted or not? That's really helpful. Um, I think that it's a huge issue. Uh, it goes right to the heart of our culture that when we as a culture turned our backs on belief as God as something mainstream or, you know, in the kind of secular West, we replace that with romantic love. And so the church naturally has a kind of poor, poor, um, a paucity <laughs> to the culture. It's kind of adopted the culture's uh, dictum that romantic love is the way to flourish. And if you don't have it, you're a miserable person. You're kind of done with, <laughs> you know, you're to be discarded. And I actually discovered in the gospel really good news that my romantic status had absolutely nothing to do with my value as a person in the eyes of God. And that was hugely liberating for me um, having come from the secular world where I really was defined by my romantic status. Um, and so I think at the base of the book, I'm trying to talk about the commodification of desire that sits at the base of the church's uh, idolatry uh, of romantic love, that we sell romantic love every day in our society to try to sell products and, you know, a kind of lifestyle of uh, of 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 comfort and ease and success um when actually the call of the cross is a very different <laughs> trajectory where we're called to deny ourselves and so the way that that happens i think is with the holy spirit tasting the goodness of the lord and that then allows us to give up our idols i think we need to fall in love with god again as the church and that that will deliver us from the idolatry of uh, eros or of Aphrodite um, and bring us back to Jesus and to Yahweh. So I think, yeah, we've got to do that. We've got to allow the prophets to speak and to break the idols um, and that that will create a space where I think gay people who truly want to follow Jesus will feel far more at home. Um, I constantly felt strange as a celibate person in many of the churches that I attended because they were evangelical and they, I agreed with a lot of their convictions on scripture and doctrine. I'm like, yes, amen. And yet it came to sexuality or marriage. And it was like, oh, you have to be married if, married if you're going to do ministry. You have to, there was no infrastructure for single people in the church to flourish. There were no, you know, semi-monastic communities or missional communities where single people could form alternative family units. These things I think need to be addressed to create an apologetic that's not just 
rationally or biblically coherent and faithful, but also practically uh, viable for for uh, not just gay people, but singles generally in the church. And I think also for a lot of single women that I know, there's so many single women. In fact, I think the statistic now is that 51% of the American population is single. So wow, this is something we have to do as the church. We have to shift on this. There is no other option but to embrace sing- singleness and celibacy, or we the affirming argument will win on the pastoral level. I think that's and that a, would be a oh, sad thing. I think the balance you're saying between being biblically faithful but just practically viable is really yeah. the solution. And I think it's also interesting that you said the affirming argument will win, not just on the merits of the argument, but on the lack of us living it out relationally as a church. So let me ask you this last question that we got to wrap up. You say the church needs a new apologetic, a way of thought and life that neither demonizes Mm. nor elevates the same-sex desires facing many faithful Christians. What Mm. what do you mean by this? What is that apologetic that the church needs? So I think we need a positive moral vision. We need... Uh, something to get us excited about giving ourselves up for Jesus that <laughs> says, you know, man, I, I want to be that radical disciple again. I want to live Jesus's way. Um, and I think for me, uh, that apologetic really comes back to the love of God, that God's love is so incredible that the revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ on the cross as poured out in the Holy Spirit to us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, that love is enough. It's it is it is satisfying. It's enough. It's you know my, the grace that's been given to us is sufficient to be able to give up anything. That we don't have a right to live out what we want in our bodies. That our bodies have been bought for a price, and that that is actually paradoxically freedom. <laughs> Freedom mm. is not being able to do what I, whatever I want to do. Freedom is being led into the life of Jesus and into that love and letting go of our sovereign control of ourselves and saying, God, you can have all that I am. And when people can see that actually happen, I think it's wildly attractive to the world. I think people are attracted to that like they were attracted to Jesus. And if, if we can live deep lives of discipleship, our evangelism will reach people. It won't be a clanging symbol anymore. It will really touch people. And I think I saw that in all the characters I encountered along my journey. I saw Jesus in them because they were set apart. They were holy. And I just, yeah, I want to bring back that. Just, it's so awesome to be holy. <laughs> it's really fantastic. Mm. Like, the joy I have as someone who set apart for Jesus, like this is better than anything else I found. Like the pearl of great price, the Solomonic revelation that the only thing that is new under the sun is knowing God in Jesus. Like that's it. <laughs> that for me, that's the apologetic. It comes back to how Jesus lived, who he is, his identity and how that informs ours. And I, my testimony is that I haven't found a greater joy than living Amen. that way. David, I think so that's that, so... For me, that's the apologetic. <laughs> Amen. That's yeah. really yeah. kind of gospel 101, that it's not we're fighting against something, 
but given a positive vision of what it means to love Jesus, love other people, and then our words and our teachings will have more power if we're living out that grace the way you've talked about. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I know Scott had as well. This is so rich, David. Thank you. Just, oh, thank you both. It's, it's, I, I want to talk for another half an hour and hear uh, what you have to say. But. <laughs> well, I hope we can meet in person at some point and sit down and just flesh some of this out. But in the meantime, I want to commend to our listeners your book, War of Loves. It's just, first off, it's just a riveting story. It's an honest story. And it's rooted in scripture, which is what we're all about here at Biola and on this podcast. Yeah. Let's find practical solutions, but let's ground them in scripture. So thanks for your boldness. Thanks for your clarity for writing the book and for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, David Bennett, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.